Hello, boys and girls. It's time for another episode of .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin, as always, in New London, Connecticut, and my co-host in Atlanta, Georgia. We please welcome Mr. Mark Dunn. Hey there, Carl. How's it going tonight? How y'all doing down there? Hey, we is doing good down here. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, we had fun last week, didn't we? Absolutely. I mean, I've, I've really never been up to the Northeast, and we got to go up there and shoot a movie. Yeah, so Mark came up to uh, Connecticut, and uh, we drove up to Maine, where uh, Randy Judkins lives. He's our friend who plays main character Sunny Day uh, in our videos, and we shot a new video. And it's interesting because the topic uh, that our guest is going to bring up, one of the many topics he's going to bring up, is uh, asynchronous calls and asynchronous programming, which is what we were illustrating with juggling. Using, That's right, multi-threaded. Yep, using Randy's juggling talents. So we spent a couple of days up there. That was fun. That was a blast. I, I really enjoyed it. Randy is a great guy, too. Yeah, we ate, ate some incredible Chinese food. That was good. Yeah, that's right. Always good. Um, spent a couple of days, one day, writing and sort of blocking through what we were going to figure out. And So had you ever been to Maine? No, that was my first trip up to Maine. It was beautiful up there. I got to see a lot of rock walls all over the place. You couldn't sling a dead cat without hitting a rock <laughs> wall up there. <laughs> that's true. And You know, if, it's interesting that not a lot of people know why there's so many stone walls in New England. It's because the, the glacial deposits during the Ice Age just sort of dropped them here. And um, subsequently, if you were going to do any farming, you had to clear, plow the fields, and in, inevitably you'd hit lots of rocks. So uh, the farmers used to use the rocks to build walls to uh, separate their property and divide up their acreage. And then you, you'd be walking through the woods up here, you know, in the middle of nowhere, and you'll see this rock wall. That's it's a New England thing. So how did did you have like culture shock going to Maine? Uh, oh no, not not really. I mean, you know, it uh, the weather was much better than I expected it to be. It was probably colder in Atlanta when I flew home than it was when I I left Rhode Island. So what do you think, uh, New Englanders are as tourists as they're? Legend? You know that that was a. A big impression I got from Randy, you know, uh, he was as hospitable as any Southerner I've ever met. Yeah. True. We had a good time. So then we came back here uh, to the Franklin's Net headquarters and we did some videos. Another coincidence, because our guest Ken Getz does training videos for AppDev, and uh, the videos that we were doing are just these little free 5-minute, 15-minute uh, how-to videos. We've been doing those on our site, and uh, we did a couple of them. Yeah, that's right. I uh, I was playing around with the bitmap object uh, one day and took a look at the save method on it, and I noticed there was a little enumeration at the end that had all these cool graphic formats on it, and uh, it's very easy to have it convert a graphic for you, a JPEG to a GIF or a GIF to a bitmap. So, uh, and I did one on asynchronous calls to web services and uh, another one still on um, using event logs for inter-application communication, which I thought was interesting. Anyway, yeah, the, the event log stuff is really cool. Uh, I think you were telling me that uh, you, had, you had, in class, done something where you accessed the log uh, over the network on another machine. Well, we tried it. Um, we ran against the security policy, and we didn't want to spend time messing with it, but it's definitely possible. 
Um, but even on the same machine, it's possible to go from one application to another. Basically, you write to the event log in one application and get an event that the event that the log was written to in another application. And it does work across the network with the right security. Right. So uh, let me uh, introduce our guest. Our guest is uh, Ken Getz, independent trainer, author, programmer, speaker, extraordinaire. And uh, like we said before, he's also one of the more prolific makers of training videos at AppDev. Ken, how are you? I'm great, thanks. I just got off the plane from recording more videos. Wow, so you recorded some videos on the plane, did you? That was it, yeah. That, yeah. Was, that was where I was, where I was at. Actually, some shots no, of the stewardess. I was in St. George, Utah. You had a, quite an adventure getting home, did you not? Well, unbelievably, it snows in St. George, Utah, and it decided to do it today. So my mm. little puddle jumper flight was delayed three hours. But, you know, we got home finally. So this is, you were telling me off the air that uh, you're a morning person, and this is pretty late for you. It's like really late for me. I'm never up this late at night. It's almost 10 o'clock where you are? It's almost 10 o'clock where I am. Yeah. Wow, man, we're we're just getting warmed up. You know, it's it's almost 1 o'clock here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. 1 o'clock in the afternoon, right? Uh, no. No. We're, we're evening people. Yep. So we'll try not to, uh, we'll try to keep you awake during I'm, this. I'm awake now. I've had a, a big, big Diet Coke, so I'm, I'm caffeinated. <laughs> So what were you uh, doing some more? Vi- How many videos have you done for AppDev? Um, well, you can't count them because there's so many. I mean, there's so many individual little videos. But we did Access 97, Access 2000, VB5, VB6, uh, VB.net, ADO.net, ASP.net. And I wow. just did another six hours on VB.net for them. Wow. So a lot. Cool. So that's like a, a whole series then to, to get six hours worth of tape? Well, it took, I mean, to get six hours of tape, it takes about uh, 15 hours of studio time. Hmm. You know, believe it or not, we actually say things wrong occasionally. No. And demos don't work and stuff. Well, hey, let me tell you, uh, to get eight minutes of Sunny Day, it took Carl and I about eight hours. Well, we were doing more than standing in front of a computer camera. Right, I was just stand, I'm standing there in front of it. Actually, the video camera, they have a very, very, um, very advanced and technological system, with, which is very, does a good job. I mean, these videos are very professional. Yeah, I've seen them. They're great. So, um, yeah, AppDev does a nice job, and uh, and they got a, a large series of these besides just the ones I've done. They have SQL Server, you know, a lot of other stuff, too. So you start- I would uh, drop, die app, uh, drop by AppDev.com to visit, see what they look like. What kind of developer... Should you be to be able to learn from training videos? One who's able to sit in front of a TV and watch some really pretty boring stuff for a long. I mean, how how exciting can it be watching a video? <laughs> but we try to make them as humorous as possible. Right. So as possible is pretty limited when you're doing it on video. Yeah. Yeah. So I I, you know, I I tell a few stories here and there, but you don't get much chance to tell your funny stories in front of the video camera. True. At least I don't. They don't let me do that. What I like about you guys' videos is you're very relaxed behind the camera. I've seen some videos where, you know, people are all uptight and, and reading from a script and perpetually smiling and talking through their smiles and, you know, just look like robots. Those are the professional actors who they script and hire to come in and, and act them out when they don't trust the developer to do it. Wow. Aptive has always sort of trusted us to talk about our own stuff. Yeah, that's good. You know, I had an idea a few years ago that... Um... I should get the Hooters girls together in Tampa and do a video <laughs> of how to do, you know, VB.net 
told by the Hooters girls. That would sell a lot more than mine, let me promise you. <laughs> no one wants to look at me. Though I have had people come up, me, come up to me at conferences and say, Well, Ken, I've had you with me in my bedroom for weeks now. <laughs> and kind of, it's kind of scary. Yeah. Really kind of scary. So what, what was your, uh, what's your favorite topic? I mean, you talk about a lot of topics and you understand a lot about what's going on in .NET. What's the coolest thing that's on your mind right now? Well, the coolest thing, the one that certainly has on my mind at the moment is I've been delving into printing in .NET, which is, Ooh. Which is no fun. Yes. Now, they did put a bunch of cool stuff in there, and it's a lot better than printing in VB6. So in VB6, when you wanted to print, you had to learn this sort of new separate API for printing stuff with the begin doc and the end doc and all that stuff. At least in .NET, it's just using GDI+, except you're printing to a different device. You mean you're drawing to a different device. The thing that I found uh, daunting about printing in .NET is that, you know, it's not like you have a printer object where you say printer.currentx and current y and then printer.font and, you know, print. That's the good part about it. And, you know, and instead you have callbacks and all sorts of things that you have to uh, handle. It's not as... I think if you're used to the old VB programming model, you're in for a surprise. So I read this science fiction book, and the science fiction book was all about this world in which everything, the, the motto of the book was, everything you think you know is wrong. And that's how VB6 printing was. It's all wrong. Right. GDI Plus <laughs> is the way to go. Because that's what's happening under the covers anyway. Okay. So that's my opinion. You can disagree. No, I, 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 all I'm saying is that if you're expecting it to be as high level as VB programming, right. you're in for a surprise. The problem is they made one fatal flaw in the design of printing in .NET that I found. And I found this mentioned in the Petzold book. He wrote a great chapter on printing. And what they forgot to do was make it possible for you to find out exactly what the printable region of your printer is. The printer knows, and the printer tells Windows, but Windows doesn't bother telling on that framework. Region, what do you, you mean a, a graphics region? No, the, the, there's always a region on any printer where they can't print, you know, the, around the edges of the paper. Oh, 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 okay. And there's no way to per completely, accurately get that information without calling the Win32 API. Uh-oh. So that always kind of bothered me. They came so close, just missed that one thing. I have a great Petzold story. Well, let's hear it. Well, you know who he is. Uh, maybe our listeners don't, but back in the day of early C programming, programming for Windows... He wrote the book that everyone learned programming Windows from. Exactly. He was, you know, the Dan Appleman of Visual Basic. He was that to see programmers. And um, he taught the world how to write Windows programs. So in, I think it was 99 or 2000, I can't remember when it was. It was the very first exposure I had to .NET. It was an author's summit. It was way before Beta 1 came out. And um, some kid from Microsoft was up there doing a dog and pony show about G, no, something, something in .NET. I can't remember. And he, uh, I was sitting right behind Charles Petzold, and uh, he raised his hand, and and a kid looked at him out of the corner of his eye and said, uh, "Just save your questions till the end, please, if you don't mind." And then went on, and he went on, and he went on, and he went on. And then at the very end, he said, "Can I help you?" Petzold says, "Yeah, um, there's a. I've been looking through the .NET." spec and the framework and especially GDI plus and I'm concerned because there's a few things that are not there. For example, the functionality of scroll DC, the scroll device context is not there. And uh, there's nothing in the framework that will let you scroll. Uh, why did you take that out? 
and the Microsoft guy, you know, he was like a kid. He was like in his 20s. He, I don't even, I don't think he knew who this guy, well, anyway. So he, he starts to give him the old, because we did it that way and tough shit talk. And he starts, he start. he gets a little closer to him and he looks at him. And while he's talking, he says, because this is, we, you know, when we made Don, you're Charles Petzold, aren't you? And he says, yeah. So uh, why'd you take that out? I never felt more uncomfortable in my life. The guy was sort of just eating his hand, you know? And uh, he sort of just sort of uh, said, we'll talk later. <laughs> I think the answer for that is shipping is a feature. Yeah. Well, that's a good that's a good answer. And you know, for, for people who are listening who are VB developers, Petzl's book on C-sharp programming for .NET is a, is a must-read for anyone who wants to write Windows applications, whether in VB or C-sharp. He's yeah. not translated. I don't think he's going to translate to VB. Yeah. But it's worth having anyway. There's just It's so easy to translate the code to VB anyway. Right. It's definitely worth having for all VB developers. What's the name of that book? I'll tell you. It is Programming Microsoft Windows with C-sharp by Charles Petzold. Great. It's a Microsoft press book. Very thick. Excellent book. The guy writes incredibly well. Oh, he's an awesome writer. Did you read Code? I have fl flipped through Code. I keep meaning to sit down and read it. I don't read technical books all that often. It's one of these books that's sort of half science and half metaphysics, you know? He's uh, he, It's a brilliant book. Yeah. Well, I haven't read the whole thing, but uh, what little I have read, it's it's incredible. He has a way of explaining things unlike anybody else. Complex topics suddenly become clear when yeah. he explains them. Yeah. So I have to tell you, I came across this. I don't know if you guys care about gadgets and stuff. I'm a gadget kind of person. Oh, hell yeah. I came across <laughs> this. And you probably know about this already. But this thing that has made my traveling life 100% better. You want to know what it is? Cuban cigars? No. So... I am not a Sprint fan. I don't, I'm not, I don't like Sprint. But they have this wireless high-speed modem that works pretty much everywhere. Flat fee, 100 bucks a month. I was at St. George, Utah. They barely have restaurants in St. George. Okay, they have restaurants. But Sprint had this amazing signal. I was getting 100K downloads sitting in their airport. Wow. Definitely worth it. SprintPCS.com. Definitely worth it. I haven't bought anything recently that I enjoy as much as this. What's the technology behind that? It is CDMA. It's their high-speed data. It's not 3G. That's that's um, that's you know other generation stuff. But it is 1XRTT. I don't know what it is. I'm not a not a phone person. Hmm. But uh, it's it's just worked. So for the hundred a month, is that unlimited access to the internet? Unlimited. They wow. have cheaper plans for fewer bytes, but. You know, every time I sync my inbox with Exchange over the Internet with, through my VPN, it's at least a megabyte or two. So the 80 meg uh, limit for 80 bucks wouldn't get me far enough. Right. So I went for the unlimited, and it's just great. Well, we'll have to provide a link to that. Yeah, check that out, because it's, it's definitely... I think that the special, which is 100 bucks a month for, for unlimited, is only till the end of the year. So it's worth checking out. So let's get back to printing. Okay, printing, sorry. So tell me how you print a document. How you print a document, it's very easy. All you have to do is you have to have a, an event handler that handles the print page event. Okay. And in the print page event, you lay out your stuff, and you just write it to the GDI device, which is your printer. And it prints it. If you have more pages, you know, the parameter they pass the event handler 
has a has more pages property, that if you have more pages, you set that to true, and they'll call you again. It's up to you to keep track of what page you're on and all that stuff. But as long as you keep setting has more pages to true, they'll keep calling that print page event. That's it. I mean, there's other events. There's a query page settings event, so you can lay out the page settings like margin and stuff before you start printing. Hmm. And there's a begin print and an end print event. Four events. That's it. Hmm. Cool. Now, is that under system.drawing? System.drawing.printing. Interesting. So it works out. I mean, I, I was astounded how easy that is. The problem is all the objects have references. They try to be very uh, generic. I mean, I try to make it as easy as possible. But in doing so, they make it very complicated. There's a printer settings object, which has a page settings property. And the page settings property has a printer settings property. Yeah. So it's very circular. and can end up in getting very confused. Hmm. But again, Petzl really explains it very clearly. Okay. And if we buy your AppDev video, uh, you explain it very clearly there, I assume? Yes, it'll be very clearly explained with nice, neat examples. Cool. Well, it's, that's something I'm definitely going to learn to do. Yeah, it really, it really just took a couple hours to sort of get it working. So it was no problem at all. The one I've had the most fun with is WMI, the system.management namespace. Okay. Well, you can just do amazing stuff that, you know, the first thing I came across when I worked with .NET is I tried to do something, I guess, where I was working with drives on my computer, and I wanted to find out how much free space there was. Guess what? They tell you, go use the SDR run DLL from the COM DLL to find that out. I said, no way. There's no way I'm going to use a COM DLL to find out how much free space I have on my hard drive. So it turns out that basically right. anything you want to know about any hardware device, you can get easily using WMI. And it's all wrapped up in these managed classes. You just have to know the syntax, and it's, it's pretty, pretty funky syntax. So there's a special query language like SQL, except it's WQL for WMI query language. And you say, select star from Win32 underscore logical disk where drive ID equals C colon. And you get all the properties of your C drive. So it works out pretty neat. Wow, that's cool. So, I mean, anything. You want to know what brand of NIC you have, what your MAC address is on your NIC card. You want to know what brand video card you have, how much memory is on the video card, how many slots you have in your computer. It's all there. Wow. So is WMI all about reading information, or can you control settings on devices with it? There's, two, there's three things it's about. It's about reading information. You can modify some settings. Very few of the properties are read-write on these classes. So, for example, they're on the, on the logical drive, you can change the volume name. Of course, what else are you going to change about a drive besides the volume name? So the properties where they thought it would be useful to be read-write, they are, but there's thousands of properties and maybe 10% most are read-write. There's a lot of places where they have methods you can call on these objects as well. And also, you can monitor events. You can have an event monitor watch to see when your free memory gets below a certain amount or when your hard drive space gets below a certain amount. I like that. that is that what the system file watcher does? File, the file, watch, file system watcher just monitors for changes to the file system. It doesn't tell you when the drive space gets small or anything. I meant that it, it does the same thing where it registers with the OS for an event. It doesn't have to keep... That, it does the same thing, but it doesn't use WMI. Right. There, there is an API call to get that stuff. Right. But when you go to your server explorer, all that stuff in server explorer is using WMI, and a couple of the components you see on the components tab, I think, also are using WMI. Under the hood, Ken, uh, WMI is native code. 
the, the system that management classes which talk to WMI are managed code. Oh, okay. But the WMI classes themselves, like the Win32 underscore logical disk class, is not a managed class. It's provided in, it's written in this language and compiled using a separate compiler. It's definitely not managed code at this point. It's not a com object. Well, there, it? it's not a com object either. There were com, there are com wrappers for getting at the stuff as well. So people in BB6. But there's another layer beneath, beneath the native code, which is the, the stuff that talks to the drivers, and that's the right. talks to the hardware. And that's um, basically a compiled to some language. I don't know what that is. Definitely yeah. not, not com and not managed code. I really love the fact that .NET objects are so, so close to the metal. Well, there you go. And they're and very powerful. Yep. It's been lots of fun. Yeah. So what about asynchronous calls? You haven't seen the Sunny Day video we did, have you? I must say I have not had the pleasure. It's only been up there for a few days now. What we did is uh, we had him demonstrate asynchronous calls using juggling. That sounds like fun, a visual gag. We don't get visual gags on our videotapes. Right. <laughs> so I do have a story I tell about asynchronous to, to bring the point home. Should okay. I tell you, tell you my story? Sure. So here's the analogy I use in conferences and on these videotapes. So... Um, here, the concept is you have, you want to do an asynchronous callback. That is, you want to have something happen in the background so that your, your main thread, your UI thread, isn't blocked. So it's kind of like you've ordered a package from, like you, you've ordered a new computer, and you're waiting for this new computer to come, and you know it's coming on Tuesday. So Tuesday arrives, and your options are you could, at the crack of dawn, sit on your doorstep and wait for your computer to arrive. That's the synchronous version of this operation. It blocks your UI thread. The other option is you can go to work, but before you go to work, you hire the kid from next door to come sit on your doorstep. So your uh, main UI thread's doing what it's supposed to be doing while you have a background worker thread sitting there waiting on the response, the package arriving. Very good. So then when the, pa when the package arrives, he's going to call you and let you know it's there so you can come home. But that can't happen unless you give him your phone number so he can call you. So this is like that iAsync result object that gets passed around. Right. You've got to set it up correctly. And if you don't set the right delegate, he can't call you back. Right. So unless you give him the right phone number, he can't call you so you can come home and play with your computer. So that's a real simple analogy for how this all lays out. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. So um, it always is good for a chuckle at the conference. Yeah. People are easily amused, I think. Very good. Um, now you can make any call any function asynchronously, can you not? You can if you set up a delegate type, and then you can invoke it asynchronously. So what is the syntax to invoke a function? Let's say I have a function called do something that returns a string. You would make a delegate. Mm -hmm. You'd say a public or private delegate a function, do something, and get the return type. And then in your code, you would dimension something as a new instance of that delegate type and set it equal to the address of your real function. So the code to set up your callback function is you do like private function delegate. A private delegate function. Private delegate function. Because a delegate is the type, it sets up a type. Okay. So the function do something uh, returns the string, whatever and that, it returns. That do that uh, return delegate is going to is going to accept an iasync result. Now that that's the, that design pattern isn't required for just calling a method asynchronously. Oh, it isn't. Don't think so. Okay. Right. So a delegate is um, is really just defining the method signature when you declare it. Is that right, Ken? That's right. It's defining a type, which is your your procedure, 
which defines what parameters it accepts and what types it returns. Okay. What I'm thinking of at the, this very moment, to change the subject, is when you want to be able to, from a background thread, write into a form. I mean, what a common thing people do is, uh, this example has came up all the time, is someone sets up an asynchronous call to a web service method. Right. Okay? So you have an asynchronous call, and when the result comes back, you want to write the results to a win form. Okay. People do this all the time. And then in that callback function, they just they'll write directly to a form. Yeah. And the problem is, the rule is that Windows forms aren't thread safe. And so if you try to write to them from what is actually a background thread, you're likely to corrupt the data that you have in those controls. Because if the form's writing to the control and your background thread's writing to the control, no one's playing traffic cop here. Any procedure that runs at any point runs in the thread from which it's called. Okay, sure. So even if it's in the form's code, it's being run in the thread that it's been called from. And you can test this out, because if you look at the thread ID from within that procedure oh, and compare it to the form's thread ID, they're different. So then would you lock the control that you're writing to? You don't have to. They have this neat technique, and that is, this is really buried pretty deep in there. And I've got to thank my friend Brian Randall from Developmentor for showing me this technique, because it's really important. Okay. But it's not really that obvious. And the concept is, when you get back from this callback, you know, your, your asynchronous callback goes out, you come back, and in your callback procedure, if you want to write to that form, mm -hmm. the standard thing is just write to the control. You, know, you put the answer in a label on the, on the form, but you're going to be in trouble someday if you do that. And it's real easy. So let's say, you've got to imagine this now. So let's say you want to write some text into a label on your form. Right. So the line of code you would write would be something like, oh... Uh, me.label.text equals this new value. Right. So what you have to do is first write yourself a procedure which does that. So I might, something, I might write a procedure called sub write to label. It takes in as parameters a label and a, text, and a piece of text. And in that procedure, I put the text in the label. Okay. Okay, that's the first step. Second step is create yourself a delegate which maps to that procedure. So I write make at the top, you know, outside of my class, I would declare private delegate sub write to label delegate and same parameters, no return value. So it would map exactly to that procedure I just written. Okay. So now we're ready to go. In your callback procedure, you dim a new instance of that delegate type. Delegates scare people. They're just type declarations, and that's all. Okay. So you dim a new instance of that delegate type instead of equal to the address of your real procedure. Mm -hmm. And the last step is, this is the tricky one, everything that inherits from the control-based class has an invoke method. You can pass it, that delegate you just set up, and any parameters it needs. The neat thing about invoke is, it always runs in the thread of the window handle that owns it. Cool. So that means that it does a thread switch back to the forms thread, and runs it safely in that thread. Wow. So if it's documented, you look under the invoke method of the control class, and they say it runs the delegate you pass it in the context of the thread context of the owner of the, of the window handle. So let me ask you a question. That sounds very cool and very tricky, but um, would, it be, would it be just as easy to synchronize, the, to, to lock, sync lock the label control and write to the text file? Sure, I guess you could. You could use sync lock, pass in the label control as the locking thing, right. or just use the whole form. Right, or just the whole form, sure. 
And then uh, it's something that is publicly available and not nothing and and not a, and not a value type. Right. What would you, uh, what would you think would be more, um, efficient? This meet out invoke. I really like it. I mean, either way, setting up the delegate takes one extra line of code. Right. Sure. So it's not a big deal. It seems to me the right solution. I always worry about locking things because the moment you lock something, there's always a chance it won't unlock. Though, SyncLock guarantees they, they have an unlock built in. Right. So it shouldn't be a problem. See, this is all the fun stuff I learned writing this courseware. I had never played with multi-threading before I wrote this courseware. Yeah. You learn a lot doing that stuff. Hey, I did something uh, interesting in my class tonight. I was teaching a, a night class this week. And we got on the subject of uh, of really fiddling around with System.net and doing some things with TCP tonight. So I decided to write a demo for the class where I created a, a TCP server that would simply return the time on my server to any of the clients. Uh, and, you know, wrote a client piece of code for them. And, you know, I distributed this out on the network in the classroom. So what I really wanted to do on the on the server was to show when somebody made a request that came back in. So I wound up writing the code that handled uh, the TCP listener on the server into a class, and I created a thread. And from the form, I went ahead and instantiated and ran uh, that function out on a thread to itself. And to get the uh, the text back on the form, I had a label there. And inside the object, I simply created an event and dimmed my reference with events. So it was raising an event to show uh, when a particular client came in and requested the current time. So events are are like delegates. Is that sort of the same pattern that you're talking about? Events are delegates. I mean, there's no difference. If you you created events, that you created an event, what would your event call uh, just status. I did status and passed a, a string back and did with events. Okay, so if you have a, a, an event called status, if you go look in the IL for that class, you now have a new delegate called status event handler. They create the delegates for you, and, send a, and a, they create a, a class to handle that. A delegate. So it's all handled for you. When you ever, whenever you create an event, you're getting delegates anyway. However, they aren't handled asynchronously by default. You have to make that happen yourself. Delegate is a type that's describing a certain method signature. Now, if you, the value you assign to a delegate, that is a function pointer or a method pointer. And I can also have multicast delegates. Uh, is that right, Ken? You can assign several addresses to one delegate, and then when you invoke, does that call all the function pointers then? That's what happens. I mean, basically in VB.net, if you use the delegate keyword, like I said before, you know, public, delegate, sub, whatever, if you look in the IL, that is a multicast delegate. It's funny, VB.net does this weird thing right. where the delegate keyword does not map to the delegate class in .NET. It maps to the multicast delegate class, which inherits from the delegate class. So when you have multiple pointers and you call the invoke method, it calls them in the order they happen to be in the list. So you can call the delegate.combine method to take multiple addresses and combine them together into one big delegate. You know, Call invoke, it runs them in order. That's fun. That's really interesting. Um, you know, I know in VBNet, the handles keyword sort of maps to that. And if you specify multiple events with the handles keyword separated by commas, you're doing the same thing, aren't you? Exactly. 
exactly the same thing under the covers. That's what they're doing for you, and you can look at the IL and see that's what they do for you. Yeah. The interesting thing is, and again, my pal Brian pointed this out to me, is that if you have a multicast delegate, and if an exception is raised on any of the procedures that are called, none of the rest of them get called. That's the end of it. So that means if you have, for example, I had an example where I was looping through all the files on my hard drive, and I think for each one I had a multicast delegate that was called that would both write it to a form and write it to the output window, just to show how multicast delegates worked. Hmm. And if either one of them raised an exception, not only did everything stop, it stopped even looking because the code just calls invoke once. Exception gets raised, you're right out of there. No more files get handled at all. Wow. There's a neat trick that you can do that you can call. You can get that delegate under the covers, and there is the delegate class provides a way to get a list of all the listeners, and you can call them individually. So that way, if you really care, if any one of them raises an exception, you can handle it and go keep looking keep lo list looping through all of them. So it's pretty cool. They give you the capability of getting around that problem if you care. Well, listen, Ken, I'm going to take a minute to uh, pay the bills here, and we'll be right back on .NET Rocks with Ken Getz. So I'm bombing around the Internet, and I stumble on msdn.microsoft.com, and I see a new icon for DirectX 9.0. And upon further inspection, I see that they've created .NET extensions for DirectX 9.0. Cool. I wonder if it's going to be difficult, I was thinking to myself, to figure out. Then I see that they have a VB.NET SDK for DirectX 9.0 and a C-Sharp SDK. So these contain sample projects, sample code written in VB.NET or C-Sharp to get at the DirectX stuff. There's also a lot of great extras, including Direct 3D Tools, Direct Show, Direct Music Producer, which is a content authoring tool for DirectX Audio. This is all great stuff. And uh, Direct Play for the Pocket PC, information about uh, a game developer conference. There's some great stuff up there. So if you've been putting off getting into DirectX before now, Check it out. You won't be disappointed. That's at msdn.microsoft.com. Now let's get back to our conversation with Ken Getz here on .NET Rocks. Welcome back. We're talking with Ken Getz about events and delegates. You know, you mentioned MSDN Magazine. Yes. And you know, I've been getting MSDN since, it was, since I was a baby. Yep. Magazine. It used to be called something else, MS something. Microsoft MSJ. Systems Journal, yeah. MSJ. And I've always loved the magazine. But back in the day, it used to be all focused on C++ stuff, and I was never That's really right. a C++ programmer. Mm -hmm. But since they've been doing .NET stuff, this magazine has just gotten, has just hit the nail on the head time after time after time. I agree. Now, I, I must confess that I've written an article or two for them, so I, I'm not like pushing my articles here, but... The articles I find there are just all interesting and useful. Good stuff. And not just C-sharp either. It's all, you know, there's a lot of good VB. There is. It's, it's, it's astounding how, how that magazine has, it seems like it's been written for me or something. I really like it. Right. Yeah, it's a great magazine. Their, their website is terrific too. Uh, it's nice though. you can always get whatever article you need to find on the website and just print it yes. out take it with you on the road. Yes. Really appreciate that. We were um, we were talking about the archived articles up there, and there's just some amazing stuff, and, and it's not dead old stuff either. It's all still relevant, 
and will be relevant as long as .NET is around. Right, because it, it's not a moving target right. at this point. Yeah. So it always astounds me, however. You know, I've been playing with .NET, as you have, probably two, two and a half years now. And I still feel like I, own, I know about 10% of this thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not like you should, I mean, I say that people get all upset. They say, oh, my, I'll never learn this thing. Right. You don't have to learn everything. That's the beauty of it. Right. It's just this big, I feel like a kid in a candy store all the time. Everywhere you turn, there's something new and fun to play with. Ken, I got to tell you that uh, if, as long as we're blowing our horns here, I, I I get constantly good evals on my training classes that I teach because I know what not to teach. Yeah, you have to know what not to tell people. Right. You know, you know, uh, you, you want to give people uh, enough to knock some meatballs out of the park. You want to give them a conscience. You know, you want to give them. Uh, you you want to do this. You want to avoid this. Here's why. But you don't need to go into how to write the CLR, you know? I'm sorry. So, I learned early on that showing people ILDASM in the first day of .NET training is not the way to make people happy. Nope. I do it on <laughs> Thursday. Maybe. In a week. Yeah, Ken, I learned at one point that showing people how to write ASP.NET code in Notepad was not the way to do it either. No, but there are still people out there who believe that that's the way to do it. Well, you know, I think that I think it's a different mindset. I think the VB programmer, especially, has a different agenda than a C sharp or C plus plus systems guy. You know, the C plus plus guy wants to understand every line of code, wants to know the assembler instructions that are going to result from that line of code, and they want to have this sort of super knowledge, control, and and minutia. You know, is really important. They're one with the machine. They're one with the machine, exactly. The VB programmer. From, the VB... from 1987 to 1991, I was an assembly language programmer. Yeah, I've done assembly. Shrink wrap software in assembly language, and believe me, I was never happier than when I stopped. Right. It's kind of like hitting yourself in the head with a hammer. It feels good when you stop. Yeah, but boy, that thing ran fast. Yeah, it's true. Well, anyway, VB programmers are certainly not that. They, they're interested in being productive. They want to make good design decisions. They want to make good code decisions. But, you know, you can show somebody how to do something the right way and how to do something the wrong way, and that's all you need to do. You, you uh, know, I think in the real times world, out you of run into, uh, to, you know, schedules get in the way of you getting into the minutia that much. You know, you've got to get something written and get it out the door. Right. they got to do it right, you know, but they don't necessarily have to visualize every line of code the CLR is going to generate. But you can if you want to. Right. That's the nice part about that, that is you can That's get in it. there if you want to and see what's going on. Yeah, one guy I had from Fidelity Investments this week um, was incredibly impressed by the IDE and especially being able to see the disassembly and the memory registers. And when I showed him the CPU registers, they all went, ooh, ah. I said, you know, for the real hardcore people, look at the CPU registers here. Did you ask them <laughs> what they were ever going to do with that information? No, no, no. But he was impressed because he was a C++ programmer. And, you know, he sees he says that it sort of seems like they sort of took all the low-level debugging elements from C++ and the high-level stuff from Visual Basic and put it together. And that's, that's exactly what they did. He was impressed. So I've got I to give you this tip for teaching. My friend Andy Barron, for whom, with whom I've written a bunch of the courseware, Andy Barron, Mary Chipman, and I have written about a lot of this courseware together. And I used to, when I get in front of the videos, set a breakpoint and single steps the code, yep. which is somewhat useful. But the deal is, people get, I think, sometimes 
know, off-put by as you're single-stepping. They're trying to, in their mind, figure out what the next line of code is doing with the previous. So I've right. gotten over single-stepping. What Andy showed me was that you can, on any line of code, in design time, right-click, and for each line of code you want to go to, you can add a task list. First, there's a, oh, yeah. like a menu item to add this line of code to the task list. Right. So you go in and just set up every point you ever want to go in the task list, and then as you teach, you just double-click on each one, show the code, and talk about it. Yeah. You find it much easier to do that way. That's good. What we do uh, most of the time is we write code on the fly. So, um, well, 99% of the code we write in the class is on the fly. So I'll say, this is what we're going to do, and I give them a visualization of it. And then we pull up a form, we pull up a button or whatever we're going to do, and we write the code together. And I explain what I'm doing, and then I write the code, and then they write it with me. And then, then I stop and I wait until they're done. This is another thing I learned, that you can't teach while people are writing code. Right. You have to wait until they're done. <laughs> And then they you have their listening to you when they're writing code. They're not listening at all, not at all. They're they're zoning. They're in the zone, you know. And so, um, you know, you have to be fairly good at just uh, just you know determining when they're done, and who's stuck and who's not, reading facial expressions, that kind of thing. Well, usually the, the typing on the keyboard is a good indicator. Yeah. Or the guy in the back of the room that yells, it doesn't work. Right. Uh, <laughs> well, the, the last time I taught a class like that was about 1986, when I was teaching at a boys' prep school in Massachusetts, teaching high school. And we had this lab, and I was teaching Pascal back then. And you never, it's hard to teach boys with computers in front of them. Yeah. I mean, you're talking, those hands never leave those keyboards. I don't know how you do it. Right. You say, and they're, they're touch, chatting with their the friends. Anymore. <laughs> they're chatting with their friends on, you know, IM or something. Well, back then we didn't have IM, but whatever. Whatever. They're playing, you know, Pong. Well, hey, Carl, we have an email question from Jim House for Ken. All right. And the question goes, have you messed around with VB.net and the drag-drop effects to see if you can pop open a Word document and set it up to receive data from VB? Interesting you ask, because I was going to write a chapter on it for the courseware on drag-drop. I've not played with it yet, no. What a coincidence. I've been told, however that it works very much like VB6, except it only supports the Olay drag-drop. You're not getting the, the VB-specific drag-drop stuff. Hmm. But I haven't tried it yet, no. Um, there, is a, there is a white paper. Back, in, back about a year ago, Microsoft contracted with a bunch of outside people to write white papers. I know Mike Gunderloy wrote one on drag-and-drop in, in .NET. So it's up on the, the Microsoft site, the MSDN site. Hmm. So there's stuff up there. Cool. What about, okay. uh, what's the deal with VBA for .NET, or whatever it's going to be called, or what is it? it does, do we have anything like that? I mean, we don't have an office for .NET yet, so... No, they just announced, they did a, a real announcement of product code name. I don't know if I'm supposed to say the code name or not. It is um, a very complicated name, and I'll be darned if I remember the exact name of the product. But in the Office 11 time frame, I guess, you know, next year... Right or maybe this year by the time this gets on the radio or on the, on the website, um, in 2003, they'll have an add-in for the next version of Visual Studio, not an add-in, but a, a chunk of the next, for the next version, where you can, in Visual Studio, create a project that is basically a Word project or an Excel project. So basically they're going to beef up the primary interop assemblies, 
to talk to Office 11, uh, Word or Excel, so you can effectively create, create a managed DLL that's associated with the Word or Excel project. So you're, you're writing VB.net or C-sharp code that runs. I, I, I don't know if C-sharp works. I'm making that up. I know VB.net's going to work. I'm, I assume C-sharp will. Um, that will run when you open that document. So you'll be running managed code and events instead of VBA if you want. Is um, that version of Office going to be built in .NET? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Okay. Is that so going to happen anytime soon, you think? No. I was at a conference, an office conference this year, um, and Richard McInniff, who is the, I forget what his exact level, is a VP or high up in the office group, was there, and he was talking to all the speakers and saying, so what should we do about .NET and Office? Sort of getting our opinions. They've already made up their mind by this point, but he wanted to hear what our opinions were. Okay. And so one of my friends who was speaking at the conference, who I will remain unnamed, said, you should stop at this point and rewrite the entire of Office as managed code. And Richard looks at him and, and, and you think about this a second. If you imagine yeah. how many person hours there are, for example, in the Excel calculation engine, Hundreds right. of thousands of, of man months or person months, I'm sure. Right. The concept of rewriting that managed code just makes your jaw drop. They say, well, we're just not going to do that. <laughs> so, um, no. Yeah. So I don't think so. Now, they but, could publish the, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of it is native code with com interfaces. They could redo uh, the interfaces as, uh, as .NET, could they not? I'm sure they could, and probably at some point they will. I mean, we're not on the office team. We don't know what they're going to do. But right. it doesn't seem like they would be in their best interest because what do they gain except for security? I mean, that's a nice thing. Yeah, that is. It seems like the security issue is the only real issue. They don't gain speed. They don't gain functionality. The only thing they're going to gain is, 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 is security. And programmability, too, of course. I mean, yeah, you can access through the com interop layer, but you know, anything that's not com these days is good. It yeah. seems to me that a real problem with Office is that all their object models were developed by different teams at yeah. different times, and they're all totally inconsistent. You know, that's one thing I like about .NET is it appears that it's written with one brain. For the most part, I think so. Yeah. So I wonder who is, if there's anyone on the earth who could tell you what classes are in there. I don't think right. anyone knows all the classes that are in there. No, no. That'd be a scary individual if they did. Was it 6,500 classes? I emphasize over and over and over again that if you took a week off of work and did nothing but explore the framework, you would be saving your company hundreds of man hours, thousands of man hours. Just by knowing what's in there, you are going to be an answer man for anybody who says, how are we going to do this? You'll know if it's there or not. You'll have seen something and, you know, Whereas somebody who didn't know would go off and write hundreds of lines of code to do something that's already there. You could just make a call and you're done. Just like the system.net stuff Mark was playing with. You can go out and write that code yourself. Right. But why? Well, you know, this is a good question because we were talking about asynchronous calls and multi-threading. And if you have this asynchronous calling model, that sort of shields you from a lot of the synchronization issues of, of threading, except for what's in that callback. Do you know what I mean? But but the code that, in other words, when you make an asynchronous call, .NET is using a thread from the system thread pool. Right. And as long as that is adequate for you, you don't need to make a separate thread and call a function on it and do, do you know what I'm saying? Definitely creating a new thread.
thread object, the new instance of the thread class, yeah. it's always going to be your last resort. Right. The moment you have to start dealing with sync locks or the monitor class or, God forbid, a mutex, right. <laughs> you're in trouble. Yeah. And, you and can. I mean, you definitely can, obviously. Especially VBNet programmers. We are just, we have not been mentally prepared for this. It's sort of like the first time I took calculus. Sort of like the world falls out from under your feet. So are you indicating that you took it more than once? Yeah. You know, the oh. first time. Yeah. So you majored in, uh, you know, Calc 1. I had the worst years. Calc teacher for Calc 1. He was, uh. he was not interested in teaching at all. Okay, open your books to page 34, write this problem on the board, the answer is this over X. Any questions? Okay, next example. Oh, that sounds horrible. It was, it was a nightmare. That was I, my favorite class ever in high school. Yeah, I, I finally got a good class, but it was bad. Yeah, hey, I had a partial differential equations uh, instructor in college that really didn't speak English. Uh, he would he would come in for two hours, right on the board, and grunt as he pointed to things. <laughs> Neanderthal teaching. That's funny because partial differential equations were the end of my math career. That was it. <laughs> well, you're talking to a math expert here. Mark has a degree in math, actually. Oh, a degree. Yeah, not that I've really done a lot with math, but... <laughs> Let me promise you, partial differential equations was the end of it for me. <laughs> Well, anyway, so um, threading is definitely not something that VB programmers have been prepared to think about um, just because, you know, even in the event-driven model, we still think very linearly. I don't know where it was. I was at some announcement event where some muckety-muck from Microsoft gets up, it was way earlier in the beta, and said, and VB.net is finally going to have full-fledged support for multi-threading, and everyone cheers. And I'm thinking, what are you going to do with it? Right. Is this the most important thing you can imagine? It's like people always thought they want to be able to create a thread, and now you have one. What are you going to do with it? Yeah. Sure, there's we, lots of uses for them. Well, you know, Ken, I think a lot of that's the quest for respect from, you know, VB developers. Uh, I think so. Yeah. You know, we get beat up all the time because, hey, C++ does this, and you can't do that in VB, but now you can. I really, I really want to uh, preserve the idea of the VB programmer as actually having an advantage over the C-sharp program. There's so many C-sharp snobs out there, you know, that why don't you just learn C-sharp? And, uh, you know, the VB programmer, we're, we're a rare breed. I mean, we have specific requirements, specific thought patterns, and, and, you know, it's all about productivity. And you want to be productive, even if you know what's going on under the hood. That still doesn't mean you should have to do extra work to get something done that could that the environment could easily do for you hey we'll get back to this talk about vb versus c sharp in a second and believe me i got a lot to say about that but first i want to bring you back to the show that we did from dev connections um, where we interviewed a lot of the people that were there speaking one of those people was billy hollis and he was talking to us about a little tool that he would, either he was going to write or he had written, uh, which would allow him to draw over the screen, just like John Madden does or any of those guys when they're talking about players, and they can just draw on a video image freehand. Uh, he wanted to be able to do that same thing when he was teaching a class. And uh, he came up with this little tool called Chalk Talk that lets him do that. And he wrote this in VBNet. 
And so what it does is it uses the opacity property of Windows Forms, which makes a, f a form uh, transparent to some degree. And also the transparency key property of a Windows Forms. And it uses some simple GDI functionality to draw lines uh, from one point to another and captures the mouse events. And basically just lets you f draw freehand over the computer. And this is a great little tool and I plan on using it. Uh, and this is in Billy Hollis's article in his Adventures in Visual Basic.net article for December 16th uh, at MSDN Magazine Online. Now back to our discussion about VB and C Sharp with Ken Getz here on .NET Rocks. Have you um, looked at the article on got.net.com? which describes the new language features that C-Sharp's going to have that VB.net may or may not have? I uh, have not. It's, uh, there's a lot of uproar about this. Because they're, they're add, each of the language teams adds features to the product, and the other language teams may or may not have the same features. And over time, I think these languages will get farther and farther apart. What are some of those features? One of the big issues was the concept of generics. And of not being a C++ developer, this is not something I can discuss at the tip of my tongue. But when I read the article, I said, wow, that would be cool. Hmm. And it's still up in the air whether VB.net will have them. It's an issue with the CLR supporting of them. And man, if I, darn if I can remember all the details at this point. It's not something I've been thinking about recently. But definitely there were four big issues huh. that C Sharp is going to have that VB.net may or may not. And this, there's an article up on got.net.com. You can read it. Well, there's a lot of things that VB.net has that C Sharp does not have. Well, enumerate one, those for me. Yeah, okay, well, one is case insensitivity. That's one. Another one is code completion. You know, if you type if something then, boom, you get an end if. You get the, the next three or four. You get the in and starting with 2003... You get even more of this. When you hit a try and you hit enter, when you type try and hit enter, you get a catch in and end try. And when you when you hit doing some on the fly um, syntax checking, you get a lot better IntelliSense in VB.net than you right. do in C sharp. Right. Not only that, so you have you know property handlers get filled out for you, and in in VBNet 2003, you type implements, and then some interface, hit enter, and boom, all the skeleton code for all of those. Uh, for that interface gets filled in for all the properties and methods and what have you. Well, I don't know about you, but I've been very frustrated with the betas of Visual Studio 2003 because when I'm writing courseware, it has to run on the current version. And because the projects in Visual Studio .NET 2003 aren't able to send themselves back to the RTM version, I can't really spend much time playing with it. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. Some of the other features that VB has that C Sharp doesn't is just an enumeration of events. If you want to set up an event handler in C Sharp, you, ha you don't get to pick from a list of objects, first of all, and then pick from a list of events that they support or overrides or anything like that. You just have to know what it is, and you have to type it out. Except they have a very nice design time experience for events, which we don't have in VB.net, which is that right. the lightning bolt thing, which we had in the beta, but it disappeared. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, I think I'm you're going to... I'm It's true. There are some things that I wish VBNet had that C-Sharp does, you know, 
I guess unsafe mode is probably one of them. You know, it'd be kind of cool to just walk a stack of memory if I needed to. Um, but the biggest thing that you can see in VBNet as, as being different in C Sharp is that the focus is on productivity. You know, the focus is on not having to remember all the minutia and having some of that taken care of for you. Now, the downside to that is obviously you don't have to pay as much attention to detail to write good VBNet code. But you do have to be more detail-oriented to write VBNet than you did to write VB6. And you they definitely raised the bar. They raised the bar, and you certainly have to... Uh, debugging, especially. You really have to uh, use that locals window, and that sort of forces you to become more familiar with the objects that you're dealing with rather than just being able to go to the debug window and say print and get some IntelliSense on your objects, which is what people have been doing. Did I dream this, or did they get IntelliSense in the output window in, uh, in, the, in the debug window in the next version? Yeah, you know, I thought that too, and it's not real IntelliSense. Um, it's IntelliSense sort of on, on some level, oh. on a very top level, but it's not there. It's oh. not there. Yeah. Too bad. Yeah, it is too bad. It's the hen of IntelliSense. And the other one, of course, is, you know, we wish someday that we'd be able to uh, stop and edit and continue. But Oh, yes. But that's a, that's a very difficult thing because, you know, VB could do it because it was interpreted, and we're not interpreted anymore. Not only do we compile once, but we compile twice. And that well, makes I was for thinking it would let thing. you do it in beta 1. Yeah, they tried to get it working in beta 1, but it, it caused lots of problems. I keep thinking back to my office development days, where that was the one thing you were most likely to cause office to crash. Yeah. At least in my development, when I do an edit and continue in VBA, I would often bring the product down. It must be a very difficult thing for them to do. It's very difficult if you're not interpreted directly. You know, one thing I'm curious about is why they removed the, uh, the strong name button I have from a, the environment. I have a theory about that. Well, let's hear it. I'm curious why they did it. Well, first of all, the product cycle too. First of all, tell Mark, tell everybody what what that button did. Right. If you uh, if you needed to strong name an assembly, uh, there was a button you could go into the uh, project properties for that assembly, and there was just one button there that said generate a strong name. You click that, it popped in a strong name key and and set your assembly up, and you were done. When you compile with a strong name. That not only is a unique version for versioning, but it's also a security mechanism. And it's not something that you want to be able to do trivially. And I think, I swear to God, I think that they took it out and made it more difficult by requiring that you use the command line SN utility so that you have a little bit more insurance that people aren't going to just go up there and compile with a strong name, just check off and let it create one. And and then you don't know really what you don't really know what strong where the strong name key file is. It's too she, it's too high level. It also means you're going to end up with all this stuff ending up in the GAC because once you have a strong name, you can you can register it in the GAC and, and you're causing all sorts of trouble. You can, but even worse is that if you compile everything with a strong name, your hard drive will be littered with key files, and you won't really have any. You won't know how those are referenced because you didn't have to go put in the attribute yourself. I don't know. I. That's my theory. So what else can we talk about, Ken? Um, Besides your lousy trip. What's that? 
besides your lousy trip and your weight. It was weight. a great trip, just difficult getting home. Yeah. Where is home for you? I'm in Los Angeles, California. All right. Beautiful downtown L.A. I actually live very near downtown. Um, I spend a lot of time playing with GDI+. Plus. It's kind of fun. Well, you must love uh, the fact that DirectX 9.0 just came out for .NET. Well, you know, GDI Plus is so far removed for that from that. Um, they really focused. If you look at GDI Plus, it's right. It's all just on 2D stuff. They really didn't put any 3D support in yet. Right. I guess next time. I guess the giveaway is the namespace is system.drawing.drawing2D. Right. Somebody right. will have a system.drawing.drawing3D. Well, as, as a matter of fact, uh, if you go to msdn.microsoft.com, they just announced DirectX 9.0, and they have SDKs for VBNet and C Sharp and C++. So it's all managed code. Well, you know, not being a graphics draw, a graphics kind of person, I think that's a little over my head. But I was kind of having fun with GDI Plus because it was a background in math, and yeah. so few programmers really have a math background. It's kind of fun doing things that all your friends go, ooh, that's cool. I could never figure that out, like doing matrix transformations and polar coordinates and that kind of stuff. A lot of developers go, I could never figure that out. But it's just you know, polar coordinate stuff. Well, I'm interested, of course, in the audio stuff and the music producer and all that. Um, direct audio. I've done a fair bit in MIDI also. I've done a fair amount of programming with that. Is there any .NET framework support for that? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. All DirectX is now, um, man, they made managed code wrapper libraries around it. Cool. Yeah. Got to combine our talents so we could write a game. Yeah. 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 You know, I've never really played a computer game. I don't think I'd be a good choice. <laughs> Programming is a lot like playing a computer game. I guess it's like causing something to happen. That's why I like it. You're making something happen. I think it's a control freak thing. You know, I think if so. If you're a control freak, you like computer programming. You want to be in control, you make it do what you want it to do in the way you want it to happen. Exactly. <laughs> Loads of fun. Tons of fun. So, Ken, are you going to join us again at Dev Connections in May? The intent is that I will be there. Yes, you will be there. I mean, someone else controls my fate on this one, but... Uh, I believe that's me, as a matter of fact. I believe that is. Yeah, you are there. I'm looking forward to it in New sunny New Orleans. Yep, we're going to do the same uh, pre-con that we did before. That we one. are. Yep. Well, we can discuss that offline. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you don't want to. No, I do. Of course I do. I just People seem to like it. I looked at the evals. People seem to like it. Yep. Yep. Definitely a good thing. So, um, it's a lot of fun, actually. We cover in this, in this workshop, we cover all of .NET in six hours. The entire <laughs> thing. Every feature of .NET in six hours. <laughs> you don't understand any of it, but you write it all. <laughs> yeah, everyone's got their ears bleeding probably when they come out of that. Right. Well, the fun thing was um, we came up with a demo and so we had this demo, and you have to, it, it involves web services, ASP.NET, WinForms, uh, a lot of system classes, and a bunch of stuff. And if you build it throughout the day, and you get to five minutes to four when you're about five minutes left. And if it doesn't work, you spend six hours, like, twisting your hands in despair. Yeah. So, you know, if you do anything wrong, you miss a step, you get to that last five minutes, all hell's going to break loose. Right. Has Luckily, that happened? It worked. That's good. Last time. Well, I can't wait. It's going to be a great show in New Orleans. May 5th is the date in New Orleans. And they have the best food in the country in New Orleans, as far as I'm concerned. You have to Get come down. Gumbo down there. Have you spoken at VS Live as well? Have I spoken at VS Live? Yeah. Uh, about 19 times now, I think. Oh, okay. See, that tells you how much I pay attention. 
Yeah, I think uh, maybe about 15 times. So how do you compare the two conferences, VS Live and Dev Connections? Um, they're both really, I think, very good. There's um, Dev Connections has a broader spectrum of sessions, I think. Yeah. But VS Live has some really good talks and some great speakers. Right. I think they both do. I mean, a lot there's a lot of overlap of speakers, obviously. True. Uh, there aren't much overlap of sessions. They work pretty hard at that. Yeah. But um, that, that's sort of contractually uh, set up. That's good. But uh, I think they're both good conferences. Conferences is a tough market these days, you know? It certainly is, yeah. It's, it's a tough, tough sell to get people to come out of town to go learn stuff. But it's really nice to sort of have a place to interface with your peers and, and get to ask people questions. I always learn a lot of these things. I'm going to try to have Sunny Day come down to the, to the New Orleans show and see if he can uh, do some juggling in our booth and some magic and comedy. Maybe I could get him uh, involved in the show, too. We'll see. We'll see if that happens. But I, I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be great. And I've really enjoyed being able to handpick the talks myself because, you know, I, I know what developers want and I know what they don't want. And, and you know uh, all the speakers, too, so it helps And out. I know all the speakers, and the, my only regret is having to tell some of my best friends that there wasn't room for this talk or that talk. But uh, that's very tough. Well, I think you know, there's only a limited number of slots. and uh, That's it. And, and then uh, they as have long a requirement. I get seven or eight slots, it's fine. Right, well, then they have a requirement that everybody has to do at least three talks. So if you have somebody who has a really, really good talk and they don't have two other strong talks, you know, you got to say no. That's a problem. It is. Well, Ken, there's a new tradition here. We're starting on .NET Rocks with a guest, and that is any uh, downloaded software that you think developers shouldn't be able to live without, or maybe maybe a little tool or utility you downloaded that has nothing to do with development, uh, anything cool that you've... Uh, Absolutely. I got an iPod. I really? got myself an iPod. And believe me, trying to use Music Match Plus with an iPod, it just bites. <laughs> <laughs> so even though you don't really need it, I went and got, it's called, oh, what's the name of software called? Um, it's called Media Play, I think. What is mm. this? It's, the company's media4.com. Okay. I think it's called X-Play, actually. X-Play. Huh. And it lets you basically drag and drop files to and from your iPod. And it's really nice. This thing with this FireWire connection, this thing, you can suck down. I put 140 CDs down about an hour. Wow. Mark and I have this uh, the thing. We also I looked at the iPod also, but I ended up getting this thing called the Arcos Jukebox Multimedia. So it's an external 20-gig hard drive that also plays MPEGs and movies. And it's got a little screen on it. It's about 300 bucks. I got it at Best Buy. But the screen is the size of a postage stamp, right? But yeah, but it has an audio and video out. So you can hook it to your TV and watch a movie. Yeah. DivX compatible. Okay, it's so very cool. talking about illegal software. I don't know if it's legal or not. <laughs> I purchased, I went out and I searched on the web. I really wanted a way so I could copy DVDs to my hard drive. So when I'm on the road, I don't have to carry a DVD drive with me. Oh, okay. I want to watch a movie. So I got this product called DVD Copy Plus something. Uh -huh. And you buy this, 50 bucks. I feel like a total loser. I buy this thing. And all this is a collection of freeware. Really? So, the, if, if you care, the one piece of software you need to do this is a product called Smart Ripper, which you can find online. Okay. So, Smart Ripper is amazing. It takes the whole DVD, takes all the files, copies in your hard drive. I load up my copy of uh, 
what is it, InterVideo Win DVD 4. Right. And play them with my hard drive. Wow. So, so if I want to put Shrek on my hard drive, how big is that going to be? Uh, six gig. Yep. I mean, kind of a huge drive. I got a DVD burner, too. I haven't used it yet, but I plan to use it. Right now, the, the whole business of burning, copying DVDs is, is I, I believe strongly in um, preserving copyright laws. I do, too, Being actually. Being a writer and stuff. You know, you care about these things. So I'm really down on people copying DVDs and selling them and stuff. But I think Definitely. for your own use, you should be able to copy DVDs if you want. Well, I'm more interested in backing up. I, you know, I, I run a studio, a recording studio. And uh, I have lots of audio files on a big hard drive. And a lot of them, you know, they come, they record, they go. But I want to keep a, a copy of them somewhere. So this is a great solution. I can just copy all those files off to a DVD and, uh, and put them up on my shelf and uh, archive them. Go search for Smart Ripper. You'll find it online. Works great. Smartripper.com. I don't think that's what it is. I forget where I, I just searched for it. Okay, we'll find it online. Now I'll be busy tomorrow ripping Lord of the Rings. What, Mark? I'll be busy tomorrow ripping Lord of the Rings on my hard drive. <laughs> you, you'll need like a 20-gig hard drive for that. Right. <laughs> Ken, any last thoughts before you uh, turn out the light and go to bed? All I can say is I called ahead and bought tickets for the two towers for Sunday morning at 11. I'll be there. Ooh. Uh, Last-minute thoughts. Um, the .NET framework's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. There you go. Amen, brother. Preach on. And... Um, I really, I had gotten so totally bored. I, I, I confess, I got, I had been dealing with VB6 for so long, I was bored. Yeah. Nothing was exciting me anymore. And then .NET comes out, and suddenly, I'm having fun again. Yeah. Of course, I wrote this up in an editorial for some magazine once. And I got all this hate mail back saying, well, you may have fun when you're doing your job. Working is not about having fun. Working about, is, is about getting your work done. So... I'm glad you can afford to have fun. All of us people out here who are really working, we don't get a chance to have fun. I think work <laughs> is about having fun, and .NET certainly makes it more, a lot more fun than it used to be. Well, Ken, thanks so much for uh, stopping by and telling us all this stuff. It was great. I, I learned some things about events. Thanks again for calling. And uh, Thank you, and you guys have a nice evening. It's like 3 in the morning where you are. Oh, uh, it's only 2. It's been great to have you, Ken. You've schooled us well tonight. <laughs> Keep on rocking. Have a good night, and I'll talk to you all later. All right. Yes, I'm a boy. Life is hard.